Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Whenever I'm talking about Young, I always find myself saying, you know, one of Young's biggest ideas was, but then I say that about 20 different things. But I think if I had to boil it down to one word, it would be meaning. I'm here in Ireland during the COVID lockdown. It's two o'clock on a sunny afternoon. In this episode, I'm talking to writer and Jungian analyst Lisa Marciano. She's in Philadelphia, where it's seven o'clock in the morning. As well as being a writer and Jungian analyst, Lisa is a host of two podcasts, This Jungian Life and Secrets of the Mother World. This episode is an introduction to the ideas of the psychoanalyst Carl Gustav Jung. We'll be covering topics such as the shadow, projection, persona, complexes, synchronicity, fairy tales and womanhood. We hope that you enjoy the episode and as you're listening, check out in the middle of the discussion on dreams, something just randomly falls to the floor. So I'll point it out when it happens. And to me, I I think it's a kind of a Jungian thing. So you're very welcome to Spokes, Lisa, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start um, with your own background and your own introduction to Jung. Like, when did you first come across his Mm. writings or his teachings? And what was it about it or what he said that attracted you or did it initially even? Uh, I'm so glad you asked that question because I love answering that question. My mother was actually really interested in Jung. And when I was a little girl, I would go off to school and she would sit home and read the collected works. In fact, you know, I obviously own all of the collected works and many of the volumes on my bookshelf are her copies with her notes in the margin. So that's kind of cool. I remember her telling me some stories that I now know are from memories, dreams, and reflections. You know, Jung had these kind of paranormal experiences that some of which were very dramatic. And I can remember being, you know, 
you know, maybe 10 or something. And my mom telling me these incredible stories about the, the bell ringing and there was no one there ringing it, but they could see it and hear it clanging in the entryway. And I thought, wow, this, that's really interesting, you know? Um, but, but that was about it. I knew that this was important to her. I, I think that her way of looking at the world was really influenced by Jung and that influenced me. So, um, I remember being afraid of uh, ghosts when I was a little girl, and my mom would encourage me to ask the ghosts what they wanted, you know? <laughs> so I now understand that that was very Jungian. Um, but, but other than that, I wasn't, I wasn't exposed. And in fact, I think I sort of avoided it. I think when I was in, you know... 14 or something, they made us take a test in school, you know, to sort of see what career you might be good for. And I got psychologist and I was like, ha, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I was sort of like, well, that's my mom's thing. So I can't do that kind of. And then when I was 28 and I was going through a really, really hard time, and um, I was in, I was living in Manhattan. I was in graduate school. I was in, I was getting a master's in international affairs. And um, I was, I was really, it, it was, I don't want to say I was depressed, but it was sort of a dark night of the soul experience for me that year. I was suffering, that's for sure. And there was this little independent bookstore kind of across um, Columbus Avenue uh, that I used to just happen into. Um, and I would always go down to the psychology section, even though I was studying international affairs. And there was this book on the shelf called On the Way to the Wedding by Linda Leonard. And the title always drew me. So repeatedly, I would take the book off the shelf, I would open it to any page, I would start reading, and I would immediately tear up. And I would think, I should buy this book. But then I would think, oh, I've got 600 pages of reading about, you know, international human rights. Like, I can't, I can't buy this book. So I'd put it back on the shelf. That must have, must have done that half a dozen times over the course of several months. And then finally, one day, I was at a particularly low ebb. Uh, and I was really just kind of struggling that day. And toward the end of the afternoon, I wound up in the bookstore again. I went down to the psychology section. I pulled that book off the shelf. I opened it to any page. I started crying. <laughs> I put it back on the shelf. Then on my way home, I passed this little new age gift shop, you know, with like the kind of store with like crystals hanging in the window. And they had, you know, incense and dream catchers and crystals and just kind of stuff like that. At the very back of the store, they had maybe a dozen books. And on the way to the wedding was one of them. So even then, I was, you know, aware enough that this was a little bit of a synchronicity and that I should buy that book. So I bought the book and I brought it back to my apartment and realized it was a signed copy. It was signed by the author. And Linda Leonard is a, a Jungian analyst. I've subsequently um, had the good fortune to meet her and get to know her a little bit. Well, I started reading that book and it was immediately, immediately um, 
balm <laughs> and and also a world opening up. And it was beautiful and it was true and it was like it was like suddenly, you know, you'd been in a foreign land for years and years and then you hear someone speaking your mother tongue. It was like that. I was like, um, yeah, I mean, by the end of that book, I was like, first of all, I, I had a dramatically different relationship with this this difficulty that I was having. And I was like, God, I wonder if I want to be a Jungian analyst. <laughs> so that book really set me on the path. Um, I guess I guess the rest of my story is I had this idea after I finished that book. Oh, maybe I'll want to do that. So let's see. So I was 28 when I had the idea to become an analyst, and I was 45 when I finished analytic training. Wow. Right. So yeah. it, it really was something that was burning inside you, I imagine, then, that, you know, you wanted to do this. This was your path. Yeah. Some people say, like, you know, sh should I become an analyst? And I always say, you should only do it if you can't not. <laughs> So it was like that for you, was it? Yeah, it really was like that for me. It really was. Wow. And I should say, you know, in between, you know, from 28 to 45, I also, you know, did a few other things like had kids and <laughs> a few things like that. So it's not, it's not like it was pedal to the metal the whole time. Right. And, and now that you are a Jungian analyst, um, was it worth it? Oh, it was, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. It's, it's, it's been great in every way. Jung felt that a lot of uh, suffering was because we don't have a sense of meaning. And he thought that having a sense of meaning was really vital to a person's life. And he assumed there was meaning, and he was always looking for meaning. So, and that that sounds like a very big idea, but it, it has important ramifications even for just your everyday life. Because, for example, you know, I was really, really struggling when I was 28, you know, essentially with a broken heart. And I was... Um, suffering this and reading Linda Leonard's book um, helped me see the meaning in my experience. That's why it immediately shifted my relationship with that hardship. It didn't get rid of it, but I had a different relationship with it because I could see the meaning in it. And so with a Jungian lens, you're essentially always looking for meaning because you know there is some somewhere. And that reframes your whole relationship with life, with the universe. And it kind of makes it, it puts the magic back in. Right. I have a list of things that I want to talk to you about. I don't know how many we're going to get through, but soul is in there. So uh, maybe just can you tell us a little bit about what is meant by the idea of soul? Um, well, let's see. What would Jung say about soul? Maybe I'll just kind of talk about it how I understand it, 
which is perhaps not exactly what Jung would say, and certainly not what a theologian would say, but that there's some part of us that, um, y- you know, that, that, that there's, there's, you know, maybe it's related to this idea of Jung's of the self with a capital S. Um, the, the self is kind of the guiding center of the personality. It's much larger than the conscious personality. And it has a sense of being connected deeply into the collective unconscious. So kind of tapping into a deep strata of being um, you know, Jung once said it could be called the God within. And there's there's some sense that um, soul is wrapped up in that concept as well, in that it's unique to each of us, but it has something of the transcendent in it. It's not just, um, uh, you know, um, the conscious personality. It taps into something greater. Right. And when you were talking about giving life meaning, um, the meaning is connected to the idea of the soul in some sense, isn't it? Am I right in thinking that? I think so. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it, it makes me think of um, the story of the uh, in Plato's Republic of um, the myth of Ur, where, where what Plato says is that um, each one of us has a a daimon before we were born that that kind of knows what we're supposed to live out in our life and we forget it when we cross cross the threshold into life but our daimon remembers so the daimon becomes the carrier of destiny so it's something like that it's something like i i i do as far as i can tell i think this is true that each of us does come into the world with a pattern we're supposed to live out. Something's supposed to, we're supposed to be something or we're, something's supposed to come into the world through us. And a lot of us experience distress when we can't align with that or figure out what it is or what needs to happen. Um, but uh, um this, the soul has some sense of that, of wanting to find that, of some recollection. Oh, yeah, we were supposed to do this. And that part is within the, the self, like it's part of the self. So that, that answer is within each person, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I can and, tell. Well, that kind of ties in a little bit with another thing that I did want to talk to you about was the importance of dreams. Tell us about dreams and um, Jungian analysts. <laughs> well, um, working with dreams can be a big part of a Jungian analysis. Um, there's certainly people who come into analysis who don't dream, and you can certainly have analysis without dreaming. But, um, you know, Jung was one of the great... Um, thinkers in terms of dreams. And I think most clinical dream work these days is probably based more or less on kind of Jungian principles. But, um, okay, so uh, if, if we take into, if we hold in mind this idea of the self, that there is this part of us 
you know, sometimes it's referred to as the guiding self, although that's a little bit uh, misleading because it's not like there's this kind of voice in there saying, oh, you should do this next or you should do that next. But I would say that the self contains this idea of telos, that we're evolving in a certain direction, that we're supposed to go somewhere. And the self kind of knows generally where that is we need to go. So dreams then come to us from the unconscious. They always tell us something we don't consciously know. And we can see that they, um, they, they're kind of like a dialogue with the unconscious. You know, um, Jung was careful to say that the, the unconscious isn't infallible. It's not like the unconscious has all of the answers and knows everything we, we're supposed to do. And all we have to do is turn off the conscious mind, shut out the ego, and just listen to the unconscious. He, not at all. Not at all. The unconscious knows more than consciousness, and it knows something different but it's really up to the conscious personality to kind of meet that information and then decide what to do with it. But one of the ways that we get that information is through dreams. Did you hear that? That's the sound of the thing that just randomly fell in the room. It's actually a Thin Lizzy album, a vinyl record that Terry loves, and he keeps it balanced on the top of the door frame to display it. I've never seen it fall before. Anyway, I've interrupted. We'll reverse a few words and keep going. But one of the ways that we get that information is through dreams. And dreams can be kind of like a um, conversation, a conversation with the unconscious. And I think you particularly see that if you're writing your dreams down a lot or if you're doing a lot of dream work and analysis where you kind of develop this particular language like, um, uh, <laughs> let's see, I... I you know, for a while I had a lot of dreams that I was in an airport, you know, and it's sort of like once I kind of figured out maybe what that meant, the dreamer, the dream maker in me would sort of use the airport metaphor whenever it fit, you know, it, was, it became like our private language. And, and I see this with people that I work with in analysis where it's like, oh, there's the, there's the, there's the kitten again, you know, whatever the kitten means. And it's like, you know, that's our shorthand. It's almost like our shorthand for something that myself, my analysand, and my analysand's dream maker, we're all using the same language. Um, so the, dreams are a resource. And, and talk about magic. I mean, if you think about it, they're a nightly experience of encountering an inner other that wants to share something with us. That's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I've always been fascinated by dreams, but I think an important thing, if I'm right in saying this, in Jungian analysis, uh, analysis, I'm saying that word wrong, <laughs> in Jungian analysis, is that, you know the way sometimes you can pick up a book, oh, what does this dream mean? What does this, in Jungian analysis it is the symbol is kind of unique to the person am i right in thinking that yes yes um right so kind of cookbook dream interpretations um don't uh don't really have a place per se um uh you know um symbols are always um 
sort of the very best way to express something that isn't quite expressible, first of all. So to to reduce it, like, I dream of losing my teeth means X. You know, that's very reductive. And we don't want to do that because dreams have just multiple, multiple meanings, you know, just layer upon layer of meaning. We want to try to keep that alive. We also can't um, really know what a dream means unless we have the dreamer there because the dreamer is the expert on the dream. And, you know, if you dream about um, uh, taking a trip to Africa, for example, my version of taking a trip to Africa might have a very different meaning from someone who... um, lived in Africa as a child and uh, now lives in Europe. You know, so if I dream of going to Africa and that person dreams of going to Africa, it's very, very different. Um, so we really want to know the individual associations, the personal associations. You know, dreams sometimes are incredibly specific with the images that they choose. So they might not choose just a table. They might choose the table that we used to eat at when I was a child. And that's important. That specificity is really important. So to get that level of uh, detail in the association matters. What I will say is that um, some images in dreams that don't have particular personal associations might be referring to what we sometimes call as a dominant So, for example, a lot of people will sometimes dream of police in their dreams. And unless they have a particular association with that policeman or maybe their father was a cop or something like that, you know, who were were the police? They they keep order. They, um, you know, they uh, hold up what's right. So that might refer to a function in the psyche that is policing something or interested in keeping order. So sometimes there's a place for those more collective understandings of images, but I would say we always approach that um, tentatively rather than saying, oh, well, there's a policeman. That must be an image of order, you know? We might just hazard a guess in that direction. I'm going to go to my list now because one of the things that I am particularly fascinated by is, and I think many people are, is this idea of shadow, the shadow side. So could you tell us a little bit about the shadow? Yeah, the shadow was one of Jung's big ideas, but it is a really important one. And it's also, I think in a way, it's an easy one to understand. So what Jung said is that in the course of ego development, so when we're when we're kids, we're in school, our parents, we're constantly being taught that some things are okay and some things are not okay. And this is normal and healthy, by the way. It's not like this is a bad thing. Um, those parts of ourselves that we are taught are not okay go into the shadow. So, you know, sexuality, greed, anger, um, destructiveness, you know, just the kinds of things that you would get punished for if you were a kid or shamed for uh, or told were wrong, you know, um, 
they, they become part of your shadow. But in addition to these things that, you know, might need to be um, carefully regulated, for example, like, I don't know, um, lying or manipulating, you know, we're all capable of that. Um, other things get stuffed into the shadow that maybe are more neutral, but just our parents didn't like them or our culture tells us it's not okay. So for example, let's say that you're very high spirited, but you have a very kind of buttoned up family. So whenever you got loud or goofy or silly, you were, you were really, um, that, that was really sat on really hard and maybe you were made to feel ashamed of it. So then that kind of high spirited ruckus aspect of your personality would be in the shadow. And what might happen later on is that you might find that when you came in contact with someone who was very high spirited and, and comfortable with being high spirited, they would really annoy you. <laughs> and you would feel um, a lot of heat around that. So one, uh, one way to figure out what what's what's in your shadow is to ask yourself what do you get really really annoyed by who really annoys you Ooh. what yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> a difficult one isn't it <laughs> it is it is it gets uncomfortable pretty quickly mm-hmm. you know and, and where where is that something that you, that exists in you that you haven't allowed yourself to claim Jim Hollis, uh, Jungian analyst, also always says, if you want to know what your shadow is, ask your spouse. Okay, very good. (laughs) (laughs) But why does this matter? Why does shadow work matter? Well, for many reasons, one of which is that the stuff that gets relegated to the shadow in early life can be a source of renewal in later life. So to take my example of someone who's very high-spirited and... um, likes to have a lot of fun and uh, be spontaneous and loud and, um, uh, you know, um, funny. If that person didn't develop that aspect of herself because it wasn't allowed in her family of origin, she might get back in touch with it maybe in her 40s and decide to do stand-up comedy nights or something. And it could be just a wonderful source of, of uh, new energy for her, something like that. So that's one of the ways that shadow work is important. Right. Um, And that kind of leads into the idea a little bit of projection then, because you mentioned about the things that really annoy us are often the things that we don't see or don't want to see or don't want to allow in in ourselves. So, but am I right then in thinking projection? I'd love to, I'd love you to talk a little bit about projection, but also that we project not just the shadow, but also you know, we can, we can really look up to a person or think they're amazing. Isn't that an element of projection? Absolutely. Falling in love. (laughs) There's a lot of projection and falling in love. Tell us about that. (laughs) So um, the Jungian take on projection is that it is completely normal. There's nothing pathological about it and we all do it. And in fact, it's how we first meet unconscious parts of ourself that we project them onto other people and we can project shadow onto other people. So we, 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 the very worst parts of ourselves, we project that out onto someone and then really hate them. And then we don't have to admit that it's part of us 
but we also project the very best parts of ourselves on other people, people that we look up to, that we admire. When we fall in love, we're, we're always projecting the most tender, valuable parts of ourselves onto the beloved. Um, and and uh, projection becomes a problem if we don't if we aren't psychologically curious about what's going on and we allow it to kind of get reified so that we see the other person out there as the bad guy. And that's how we've dealt with shadow. We've just projected it out there. And uh, now we're going to go never talk to that person again, or we're going to block them on Twitter, or we're going to go annihilate them, which of course is, you know, if you think about this sort of uh, historically on a cultural level, this is what societies do, right? That, that, you know, they're the bad guy. That's the evil empire, whatever that happens to be. And, you know, we're, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna go annihilate them. So obviously, um, this can be very dangerous, especially in, um, a post-nuclear world. Um, and, and there are analysts who've, who've written about that. Eric Neumann was, a a cohort of of Jung's, and he um, was a Jungian analyst. He wrote a, a a really powerful book called Depth Psychology and a New Ethic, in which he talks essentially about this, that we can no longer deal with the shadow through projection. It's just too dangerous now. So what we want to do instead is when we become aware we've projected something, we just want to get curious about it, and we want to come into relationship with it. And projecting it can be a first step toward doing that, but we have to we have to be be more psychological about it than just assuming it's literally true. But surely there's some people who are all good, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Absolutely I know not. people who are. Oh, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah, tell us about that then, because I know people who you know, who want everybody to be nice and who want everybody to be good and kind all the time and who kind of project this um, image, I suppose, of themselves as being, you know, I mean, I've done it. I do it like that's me not projecting. (laughs) 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 But um, yeah, just tell us, is there such a thing then as a person who is just good? That's it. No, <laughs> no, um, no, we're, we're all capable, you know, it's like, it's like, um, what is that, what is that, um, quote, you know, anything human that's, that, that is I, you know, I mean, we all have the, we all have within us, you know, an inner Hitler and we do, and, and we better know that otherwise we can, um, get into deep trouble. One of the things I think you were hinting at there is this idea of persona. So persona is another union concept um, that comes from this idea of the mask. And again, persona, having a persona is not bad. We all need a persona. We need a business persona. We need a, you know, um, family holiday with the in-laws persona. We need a... um, babysitting the nieces persona, you know, we have different kind of um, masks, if you want, that we wear. I, I, In dreams, clothing can often relate to persona. And I like the idea of clothing standing in for persona, because I think, I think that's just right. I mean, if you were going to go to um, a fancy cocktail party with your husband's boss, 
you would put on a certain outfit and that would be like putting on a certain persona and you would go to that party and you would, um, you know, try to engage in polite chit chat and you wouldn't talk about anything too heavy and you wouldn't, you know, um, spill your guts about, um, the fight that you got in with your sister last week, you know, you would, you would try to have an appropriate cocktail party on your best behavior, uh, appearance, both socially and also physically. Whereas if you were going to go, um, uh, you know, play soccer with your girlfriends, you'd wear something different and your personality would be a little bit different than it would at that fancy cocktail party. So there's this way that we kind of naturally, wear different aspects of ourselves, and and that's appropriate. But, and I'm going to get back to shadow in just a second. The only problem with the persona is when we're too strongly identified with it, and we really think that's who we are. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Okay, now the thing about the persona is that the, pers- the, the persona is compensated by the shadow. So the brighter the persona, the darker the shadow. So those people who are all nice all the time and uh, insist that everyone else be nice and uh, see the world um, in this really kind of rigidly sunny fashion, um, I, I can bet you... <laughs> that they have uh, some dark stuff in their shadow because that's just kind of a kind of the a universal law of the psyche is that um things things balance mm. and then of course uh, is it that if you don't see that in yourself that you see that in other people then yeah if you're not aware of your shadow that you would you would project it onto someone else yeah Yes. It's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk to you as well about the idea of the complex. Mm-hmm. So is that 
uh, the idea of an intense emotional experience where we almost get carried away by the emotion. But can you tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that and what a person should do if they find themselves, you know, in a really intense emotional uh -huh. situation? Uh -huh. Okay. So <laughs> the complex was another one of Young's really big ideas. <laughs> um, he came up with the idea of complex when he was doing the word association test. If you saw the film, The Most Dangerous Method, they show the association test in that film where, uh, you know, Jung would read a stimulus word and it might be something fairly neutral like table. And then the, the subject is supposed to answer back with the first word that comes into mind. So you might say chair. And there's a list of, I, I think it was like 40 words or something. And what Jung found is that there were sometimes um, like undisturbed responses, like I would say table and you would say chair. But there could also be disturbed responses where it would take someone a really long time to answer or they would they would come up with a, a very nonsensical answer or they might laugh or um, uh, have a physiological reaction um, and 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 Jung would sort of read these stimulus words and then see which words had a kind of complex reaction to it. And he could sort of intuit from that where the kind of psychic disturbances were. So a complex is a web of feeling-toned associations that form around an archetypal core. And what that means is that if we have, for example... Um, a wounding, wounding experiences with our father as a kid. Let's say we have, let's say our father's a difficult person. And so we have some difficult experiences with, with him as a kid. He's disapproving or he's stern or he's critical or something like that. And we feel, you know, shame and hurt. So those are these experiences that start to kind of coalesce around this idea of father. And then we might say as an adult that we have a negative father complex. And that might look like whenever we are in a situation with a kind of analog for father, that we have difficulty. Like, for example, this person that I'm making up who had a difficult relationship with her father, let's say that she gets to university and, uh, you know, her ad faculty advisor is this kind of stern uh, elderly male professor and she finds that she just gets so anxious whenever she has to go see him that she just always uh is you know can't can't get herself sorted and and uh is kind of you know scared of him and so he thinks what's this girl's problem and doesn't like her and then she has this problem with her male professor right and and i would say say that as like ah oh, there's your negative father complex kind of getting acted out into the world and, you know, maybe she has problems occasionally with male bosses in the future. And, and then when she starts to date, maybe she winds up dating men who are kind of critical and cold and, and that sort of thing. So we, we would say there's this complex that's kind of running in the background. And it's having an influence in many different areas of your life. Now, there's also what you were talking about, which is when an, a complex kind of becomes activated. And that's like where you have a big emotional reaction to something that maybe seems even disproportionate. Um, and you feel, I almost think about it as like, you just get unhorsed. 
you were riding along, you were doing fine, and then all of a sudden you just get knocked off your horse. You're sitting there on your ass going, oh my God, what just happened to me? Maybe you feel overwhelmed with fear or you feel overwhelmed with shame or with anger, but it feels really out of control. It feels like your ego is not quite in control. And I think that you asked what can we can do about that. I think that when we recognize that we're in a complex, we know that we're not seeing the world totally clearly. We're seeing it through the lens of this intense emotion that also has these kind of memories around it. You know, so again, to kind of put this into my made up example here, this this young woman, let's say, uh, let's say that she, um, let's say she has a bad encounter with her faculty advisor, and then she leaves, and she's just distraught. She's just so distraught, and it's you know, it's disproportionate to what actually just happened, but it's bringing back all this stuff about her father and not feeling good enough and feeling criticized. I'm really just making this up. And, and she just kind of almost can't get out of bed for two days, you know. So the good thing is that we can, when we begin to think about this as a complex, it immediately helps because we know it's going to end. And it's almost like when you're in that state, the best thing you can do is just be really gentle with yourself and just try to find compassion. Literally things like exercising or taking a shower can help. But in, in essence, you're just trying to wait for it to pass and giving yourself permission to take care of yourself while you're waiting for it to pass. Okay, and so it's being, about being aware of it. Yes. It, once yeah. you become conscious of it, that immediately shifts it a little bit. And what you find is you, no one ever gets rid of their complexes. But what will happen is you'll get better at knowing you're in one. And that will make it easier to take care of yourself when you're in one, and you'll get out of it faster. Yeah. Great. Um, hopefully, I think people will find that really helpful. <laughs> I think it's a great, it's a great um, method to use or to, you know, to just be aware more. And you, you mentioned the word curious actually earlier. So I think to be curious is, is, is a good one too, isn't it? Curious is one of my favorite words. <laughs> Um, well, maybe now might be a nice time to go back to the idea of synchronicity. What are synchronicities? Um, so Jung worked on the idea of synchronicity with the physicist Wolfgang Pauli, who had a relationship with Jung. And um, what, what he said is that a synchronicity is a meaningful coincidence. And he called it an a-causal connecting principle. So it's when two things happen at the same time that they didn't cause each other, but the fact that they happened at the same time means that there's some, some, uh, something kind of active in the psyche that's also being reflected in the outside world. Or, or you know, it brings in this idea of this, um, this kind of unus mundus, that we're all connected, we're all in a sort of, you know, unified field, if you will. And, um, you know, I'll, I'm just going to take an example from, from Jung's um, life. Let's see, he was, he was in his office seeing a patient. I hope I get the details of this right. And she had had a dream about a scarab. 
And they were talking about this dream and the scarab when all of a sudden there was a kind of a scratching at the window and Jung looked around and it was a beetle, which would be the sort of closest European analog of a scarab. And I think he, I think he opened the window and then the bug came right in and he said, here's your scarab, you know? And, um, and the, the, there was something meaningful about that for him and for the patient and for their process. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's understood that synchronicities tend to happen to us when we're in the midst of uh, an important psychological juncture, I would say. Um, they certainly feel, thinking back to this word that I used earlier, they certainly feel highly magical. <clears throat> I mean, there's some that are just so remarkable that you can't not help be impressed by them. Of course, you know, we're meaning-seeking creatures, and I think it's also easy to kind of find these patterns. Um, if you're looking for them, you can sort of find them everywhere. And... uh so kind of what what's the threshold for it really being a synchronicity? I don't know. I mean, I think my seeing on the way to the wedding twice in the same day and the lowest ebb and the second copy was signed by the author. I don't know. That felt like a synchronicity. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which you have um, briefly mentioned, I think, earlier, was about uh, fairy tales. Mm -hmm. I think you're a fan of fairy tales. Am I right in saying that? Because I, I know indeed. on this Jungian life, uh, you would often bring in a, a fairy tale to mm -hmm. help us understand the story. The, the one I listened to the other day, which I loved, the one about authority, the three billy goats gruff. And I was thinking, how can there be meaning in this? But there was a psychological meaning but can you tell us a little bit about fairy tales and young and your own um kind of relationship to fairy tales mm -hmm. well young was very interested another one of his big ideas was archetypes so archetypes are psychic universals you know these images that uh are, or ideas really that exist you know across time and place in all cultures um, there's this, there's this sense of kind of, um, a numinous quality to an archetype. Um, so we, we know something really important is there. And the I exact ask you something about, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there just very, very briefly, because mm -hmm. archetypes are one of the things that I've had difficulty with understanding. Mm -hmm. So could you give us a, an example maybe of an archetype to help mm -hmm. us understand it? Mm -hmm. Well, um, Archetypes are, uh, you know, the kind of content of myths and fairy tales. So there's this universality to these image to this imagery, and you know, of course, uh, Greek myths are very different from, say, Celtic mythology, and yet you'll see some of the same themes and some of the same uh, energies, even if they're imaged differently. There's the hero. There's um, the warrior, there's um, the witch, there's the goddess, you know. Um, and, and fairy tales also contain, contain these archetypal images. So the idea of fairy tales is that they're, they're, they're universal. They're universal stories about the workings of the psyche. 
and their patterns of um, psychological dynamics kind of pictured in this wonderful, colorful, beautiful, interesting language. And they're a little bit like dreams. And there's a, one of the reasons that we study fairy tales in training to become an analyst is because the better you are at interpreting fairy tales, the better you'll be at interpreting dreams. Partly oh, because wow. fairy tale imagery sometimes comes up in dreams, but also partly because they're not, it's not so different. It's not such a different exercise. So um, some of, you know, Jung, Jung wrote some about fairy tales in the collected works. Um, one of his uh, closest associates, Marie-Louise von Franz, um, loved fairy tales. And she wrote many, many, many books about fairy tales. And I, I love Marie-Louise von Franz. <laughs> so um, her stuff is great for like an introduction to a Jungian interpretation of fairy tales. Do you have a favorite fairy tale? I have a couple of favorite fairy tales. Um, when I was a kid, I loved Beauty and the Beast. And um, and I also loved, uh, and I still love, this might be my favorite fairy tale, Vasilisa the Beautiful, which is a Russian fairy tale. So it's a kind of a Cinderella setup. Um, you know, Vasilisa... Vasilisa's father, her mother, her mother dies. Um, when her mother dies, her mother leaves her a little doll and tells her, um, if you're ever feeling, you know, sad or distraught or, or scared, give the doll a little bread and a little beer and tell it your problems. And then her mother dies. Her father remarries. And of course, there's the wicked stepmother and the wicked stepsisters. And they make Vasilisa... They make her sleep in the garret. They make her do all of the housework. They're very mean to her. Her father is always off on business somehow. Um, and so Vasilisa is very miserable, but when she gets really sad, she'll give the doll a little bread and a little beer and tell it her problems, and the doll will come alive. And the doll will always say, go to sleep now, Vasilisa, for the morning is wiser than the evening. And then the doll will do her chores for her. So um, one day, the stepmother decides that they, she wants to get rid of Vasilisa. And the way she's going to do it is she's going to make Vasilisa go to the home of Baba Yaga, the great, wonderful Russian witch. So the stepmother causes all of the lights to go out in the house and says, you know, there's no more fire. We, we, we can't do our work. We need fire. Um, Vasilisa, you have to go to the nearest house and get fire. And of course, the nearest house belongs to Baba Yaga. So Vasilisa leaves, brings her little doll with her and travels overnight to the home of Baba Yaga. And while she's walking at sundown, she sees a black horse on a, uh, with a black rider pass and then night falls. In the morning... Right before dawn, there's a white horse with a white rider who comes, passes, and then the dawn comes up. And at noon, there's a red horse with a red rider. So she gets to Baba Yaga's. Now, Baba Yaga's hut is a, a little hut that's on chicken feet, and it can walk around. And it's encircled by this fence that's made up of human bones with uh, skulls, and the, the eyes of the skulls glow at nighttime. 
because Baba Yaga eats people, by the way. So there's all these human bones that make this fence around her yard and then this crazy hut on chicken feet. Baba Yaga herself travels in a mortar and pestle. So she sits in the mortar and she um, scrapes along with the pestle. Uh, to. It seems like such a very um, inefficient mode of travel, but that's how she gets around. <laughs> And uh, so she comes along and she asks Vasilisa, what do you want? And Vasilisa said, you know, I'm, I'm here to request a light. And, and Bobby, I said, well, you'll have to serve me first and then we'll see. So um, she, she lets Vasilisa in and each day she gives Vasilisa more and more difficult problems like cook me an amazing meal, clean every part of my house, separate the wheat seeds from the poppy seeds. It's just impossible things. And then she leaves her the day and Vasilisa always, you know, gives her doll a little bit of bread and a little bit of beer and says, I don't know what to do. You know, the witch is going to eat me if I don't do these things. And, and the doll says, don't worry about it. <laughs> I got it. So the doll does this for her for three days. And at the end, you know, Vasilisa is very, I mean, uh, Baba Yaga is very impressed. And um, she asks Vasilisa if she has any questions for her. And um, Vasilisa is is very careful not to ask too many questions. And then Vasilisa, uh, Baba Yaga asks her, how did you do all this? And Vasilisa very quickly says, with my mother's blessing. And so Baba Yaga says, all right, then be off with you. And, and, but before she leaves, Baba Yaga gives her one of the skulls with the lighted eyes and says, don't forget to give this to your stepmother. So Vasilisa goes home. By the time she gets home, it's almost light out. So she's about to throw the skull away. And the skull says, don't, don't throw me away. Take me into your stepmother. So she goes into the house with the skull. And immediately the skull burns its eyes into the stepmother and sets her and the stepsisters on fire and kills them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then there's a second part of the fairy tale that winds up that Vasilisa winds up marrying the czar. Uh, so what, like, to me, that's a great story. And what an amazing image of, you know, these defense made of bones yeah, with yeah. lights. But yeah. uh, what's the significance of it? Well, it turns out that it is um, kind of a theme and variations on a, an ancient, ancient story of um, the descent, the descent to the goddess. And one of the earliest versions of this is in the Sumerian legend of Inanna and Ereshkigal, where the kind of Aphrodite-like goddess Inanna goes to visit her sister Ereshkigal, which is, um, she's an underworld goddess. And when Inanna gets there, she has to strip, she has to take off all of her clothing and all of her jewelry. She arrives at her sister's naked. Her sister kills her and hangs her to rot on a meat peg. And um, finally, Inanna is rescued. And when she is rescued, she comes back to the upper world changed. Now she has the eyes of death, which means she can kill you by looking at you. So it's an image of a female initiation into the depths, a claiming of aggression you know, um, I mean, uh, Vasilisa had a good mother who gave her the doll, um, but but sometimes that good mother energy doesn't help you get in touch with your aggression. 
It helps you be kind and nurturing and gentle, and that's good. But you also need, as a woman, you need to find your eyes of death. And that's what Vasilisa gets when she serves the the, the, the goddess. I mean, part of the significance of the horsemen, which I, I left out in my retelling, is the um, the white, red, and black horsemen are... Um, they are servants of Baba Yaga. And so it lets us know that she is actually a great nature goddess. She's not just a witch, she's a nature goddess. I mean, I think I think that's what witches are, really, are de- degraded nature goddesses. But she she is kind of, you know, an earth an earth goddess. Um and and so what has happened is Vasilisa has been to serve the goddess, the dark goddess, and she's gotten yeah. in touch with her aggression. And and now she can protect herself. Right. I mean, that's just extraordinary. <laughs> like this, uh, there, I do think there's a pressure on, I do think women in particular to be nice and this idea of an almost saccharine sweetness that, you know, that we're meant to have in the world. So it, it sounds very powerful to kind of reclaim that element. Mm-hmm. It's kind yeah, of like, it, don't mess at me. Yeah, and the, the fact that these two themes, right, these two stories, which in essence are very similar, occur, you know, occurred in these different cultures at such different times, um, it shows you how universal, how archetypal this is, that women need to have this journey to the underworld to claim this authority. You know, the same thing happens to Persephone, She's Kore, the maiden, who's abducted to the underworld. But after spending some time there, she she becomes Persephone. And she's in 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 Greek mythology, she's a very, very powerful and feared. Um, so she becomes, you know, a, a powerful goddess. But that we we all have to have that journey to the underworld to claim that part of ourselves. Do you think that that's something in contemporary societies that isn't really done enough, maybe, for women? Well, I think that life initiates us. So um, I think most of us can imagine for ourselves what what our journey to the underworld was. I think many of us have had that in some way. Right. Um, I mean, there is so much, my God, there's so much. I, I could keep talking about this stuff for hours. But <laughs> um, <laughs> what we might do is if if there's interest in the listener, if the listeners have interest that we could maybe look at doing a second one, maybe down the line, we can talk about <laughs> that another time. Great. <laughs> um, so um, maybe let's finish up with talking about, well, is there anything, first of all, that you think that we haven't covered that you think would be important and that should be mentioned? Uh, yeah, maybe just quickly, I'll mention this, this uh, uh, idea of individuation. This was Great. another one of Jung's big ideas. And I've already hinted at it. But Jung believed, again, that there's, there's a trajectory of growth toward wholeness, not perfection, wholeness, that we're all meant to be following. And by the way, he says the right way to wholeness is full of fateful detours and wrong turnings. So this is not a linear journey. 
Um, but he called this individuation, and it's the process of becoming more and more conscious of who we are. And it, it's a kind of lifelong quest. Um, but it's it's really, um, you know, one of the things about Jung is he was one of the few early theorists of personality who stressed that development goes on over the whole lifespan. It doesn't stop when we're five or when we're 12 or even when we're 20, but that we continue to grow and change throughout our whole lifespan. And he called that process individuation. Right. So the process of if somebody went to a Jungian analyst, an analyst, yeah, <laughs> uh, the idea is to become individuated. Is that is that right? Is that would be the well, way to put it? Although yeah. that makes it sound like there's a finish line. <laughs> okay. And there really there isn't. isn't. There yeah. really isn't. And by the way, I don't think you need to be an analysis to become individuated, but um, or or to have that process of individuation. But analysis can help it along, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it, it is the process of just remaining open to life, open-hearted to ourselves, to life, to being curious, so that we just continue to learn more and more about ourselves. Great. Um, so one of the the ways I, I came across you actually was on Twitter and you 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 also write for Quillette and for lots of other places. So um, is there any main topics that you do write about? Well, you, you know, I have taken an interest in um, what's been going on recently across um, many Western nations where a lot of teens, especially teen girls, have uh, been identifying as transgender. And I think that my Jungian background definitely um, caused me to be, I would say, curious about that um, uh, for a bunch of different reasons, partly because I, I do see the need to explore the contrasexual part of our personality as a very normal, important thing. You know, Jung had this idea we didn't cover the anima and the animus. He said that, you know, that every woman has a kind of inner man. I'm, this, I'm going really quick here, and every man has an inner woman. But that, you know, there are masculine elements to every woman's personality and that it, it could be really important to develop those and come into relationship with them. So when I found out that teenagers were doing things like cutting off their breasts at 16, I thought, well, th this is like a concretization of an important symbolic process. So that, that initially made me really skeptical. And then the more I looked into it, the more I, I felt that there was a kind of psychic epidemic afoot. And psychic ep epidemics are another thing that Jung wrote about. So I've written quite a bit on that topic because it's something that concerns me. Uh, okay, so uh, we leave it at that. And thank you so much. That was uh, fascinating. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Spokes was produced by Colette Colfer and Terry Hackett with a little input from our son, Stevie. Thanks to our guest, Lisa Marciano. If you'd like to hear more from Lisa on the subject of Jung, check out This Jungian Life podcast, which is available at thisjungianlife.com. Jungian with a J, J-U-N-G-I-A-N.
like and subscribe and share the video. <laughs> there is no video. <laughs> Podcast. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 